This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. The football's been pretty good, but has this World Cup been what we expected it to be off the pitch? Today we look at what worked and what didn't. We look at how the Supreme Committee and FIFA dealt with controversies that happened over the past month. We discuss the coverage both by us, other broadcasters and those wholly supportive of the tournament. We'll hear from Muslim voices as well about the accusations of Orientalism and inconsistency from the Western media. This is the Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, the moral conscience and heartbeat of the pod, Philippe Claire, welcome. Good morning to you, Max. Uh, Pete Patterson, journalist who writes for The Guardian, amongst other people, who's reported on migrant rights um, uh, in Qatar for the past 10 years or so. Hey, Pete. Good morning. Hey. Uh, James Montague, friend of the pod, uh, author of When Friday Comes, Football Revolution in the Middle East and the Road to Qatar. Um, been reporting on Qatar since, since 2005. Hi, James. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Pete and James, you were both out in, in Doha for parts of this World Cup. I'll start with you, Pete. Has it gone as you expected it to? Yes. What I expected was as soon as the football started, the focus of the reporting would be on the football. And to some extent, that's understandable. I think what's frustrating from my perspective as someone who's spent almost 10 years documenting the treatment of low-wage migrant workers in Qatar is that you know real reporting on the treatment of migrant workers Uh, during the World Cup itself, I think, has faded onto the background. There's been plenty of commentary, uh, very little reporting, I feel. The press has been quite reactive in terms of what it covers on migrant workers rather than being proactive. And, And what that essentially means is going out to places that are not the focus of the World Cup and actually talking to people and listening to people. And I think that story has has been put on the back burner to some extent. I agree to a certain extent. I mean, there is still some, there's been some um, very good reporting that has touched on that. I think um, there was a fantastic piece Tarek Panjar did about a day worker trying to find work in Doha. I think there was Adam Crafton at The Athletic has written some very good things. Um uh, Samindra Kunti, friend of the uh, friend of the pod as well, I think. You know, he's been he's been out there. I mean, me and him went actually. We we went out uh, one day and left Doha. I went to some of the camps to see, uh, well, what what's happened since the last time we were there. Because I mean, we it's, it's obviously very difficult getting into them and obviously illegal. Um, and this time we found that there were police cars in each one of the camps that we'd visited before. So getting access now is is much more difficult and much riskier. We did find one camp that we were allowed to get access to. And of course, the story, as with everything with Qatar, it's what lies underneath. Um, there's this glistening World Cup uh, on top of essentially a kind of form of economic apartheid. And that still bears out with the conversations that we had with people uh, who, are, who are directly working for the World Cup in security in particular. I mean, all the contacts, I mean, Pete probably knows this as well. All of my contacts who work in Qatar, who I've kept in contact over the years, almost all of them have been sent back. 
home in the run up to this World Cup. But I think the one thing that surprised me the most, I think, is and maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, is just how bellicose Qatar have been. Really, in the run up, there were some signs to it because a lot of the reforms that have taken place and there have been some reforms, of course, we can talk about how they're implemented. But um, they they were basically forced because of the Gulf blockade, because this political and economic crisis with its neighbours. And it felt that it had to engage in, in the criticism that it was receiving. And once it became clear that they were winning that political battle with the UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular, um, suddenly a very different, less conciliatory Qatar has emerged. And we've seen that right up to even the alcohol ban at the stadium, like the, like the night before the World Cup starts, right? The attitude towards the rainbow armbands, the attitude towards the Palestinian flag being in the stadium in, in, in response to that. So um, it's it's something that I, 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 I guess probably shouldn't have been surprised by. But yeah, it's, it's as soon as they knew that they were having it, kind of the real Qatar, the gloves came off in a way. I, I was talking to um, an academic who works uh, in the region and who said that... Um, uh, uh, we're at a moment in time where uh, Qatar and other Gulf countries are in a way puffing their chest out because as well of their increased influence because of their, you know, our dependency on gas now that we don't have the Russians, we have to rely on them. And that is a moment they're puffing out their chest in a way and that they're moving away from engagement precisely on the type of questions that we're talking about. Is that something that for you makes sense? Is that something that you've seen or felt? I think something that's been missing in quite a bit of this conversation is actually, you know, what migrant workers say. There's been a lot of people like us talking about it, but actually it's important to really listen to what they say. And on the eve of the World Cup, I produced, uh, or The Guardian published an investigation I'd done on the treatment of security guards at Albida Park, which is right in the centre of Doha. I mean, probably everyone on this panel and, and, and tens of thousands of football fans, fans have walked through that park. Uh, and I found uh, over the course of talking to these workers for months that they were being paid about 35 pence an hour overtime, which, you know, is is an appalling uh, wage uh, anywhere, but particularly in a place as, as rich as Qatar. And what's really frustrated me is, you know, we're now, what, three weeks after I published that story, nothing has happened to improve the condition of those workers. And I think that bears out to some extent what James and Philippe are saying is that the the pressure on the Qatari authorities to actually make meaningful change uh, is is not nearly as strong as it should be. And, and the great fear is as the, the, the World Cup ends, that pressure will be reduced further. And, uh, you know, all these claims about the, the legacy of the World Cup being better workers' rights in Qatar, uh, I think that's really in question at the moment. We had on the subject of the Supreme Committee and how sort of their messaging has changed how they've become more bullish on the on the subject of migrant worker deaths we had this moment where Hassan al-Tawari the secretary general of the supreme committee for delivery and legacy saying the estimate is around 400 between 400 and 500 i don't have the exact number that's something that's being discussed and this is the first time that anyone had said anything that wasn't three um uh, he said the Supreme Committee later released a statement explaining what that figure meant. The official was actually referring to, quote, national statistics covering the period for 2014 to 2020 for all work-related fatalities, 414 nationwide in Qatar, covering all sectors and nationalities. Meanwhile, you had the chief executive of the Qatar World Cup, Nasser al-Qatar, talking about the death of a Filipino national, saying death is a natural part of life, whether it's at work, whether it's in your sleep. Um, he died working at the training site for the Saudi Arabian national team. 
I just wonder how you felt, Pete, about those two moments actually, and what that says about the sort of the the Qatari view of how to how what their messaging should be. I think that's a really important question. I mean, on what Al Thawadi said, the the four hundred to five hundred figure. I mean, I think it's clear that he just went off piste there, uh, and that was because he didn't know the answer to the question. And the question was, how many workers have died in relation to World Cup preparation? Not just on stadiums, the total number. He doesn't know the answer to that, and the reason he doesn't know the answer to that, frankly speaking, is because the Qatari authorities haven't investigated that issue properly. And then on what uh, when Nasser Al Qatar said. Uh, in response to a journalist's question about a worker who died, as you said, uh, uh, just last week. I mean, it was so telling. His, his initial response was, why are you asking me? Why are you daring to ask me about this question? Which links back to what James was saying about the much more bullish response the Qataris give. But specifically, he said, you know, death is a part of life. And then he went on to talk about the fact that, you know, all fatalities are investigated and that workers receive their benefit. The families of workers receive outstanding salary and benefits when a worker dies. Now, that says three things. First of all, the deep, deep callousness of his response that a worker dies and he, and, and, and he basically said, well, it's just a part of life. I mean, for me, that sums up the key message that I found on reporting for this issue for almost 10 years, which is that the Qataris fundamentally don't really care about their low-wage workforce. They are, to them, disposable. The second point is Al-Qatar was incorrect. These deaths are not investigated, and that's why we don't know why they're happening. Uh, and that, that also speaks to the, 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 the lack of concern about the welfare of these workers. Uh, and thirdly, he's talked about, you know, that the workers, the workers' families, the workers who die, they get, they get their outstanding salary and benefits. While that is true, what they do not get and what he did not talk about is compensation. Even workers who have died on World Cup, the families of workers who have died on World Cup stadium construction have, for the most part, not received compensation. And that has has left uh, uh, these families absolutely struggling to get by. I've talked to these families in Nepal. I've visited them. Uh, They've sat in front of me and they've told me how devastated they are uh, that their loved one has died. And I remember talking to uh, uh, the daughter of a worker who died from so-called natural causes in Qatar uh, just earlier this year. And she, she was just sobbing in front of me and she was telling me, you know, who can I call dad? There's no one I can call dad now. I mean, this is just, you know, emblematic of the, like like Pete said, how, and it's not just Qatar, it's also the UAE, Saudi Arabia, wherever you find kafala in the Gulf, that this, uh, underclass is disposable, that they're almost not even equal humans, you know, that they can be treated in any way, they, that they don't have any part to play in this World Cup in terms of like, you know, if in America, there's a story, there's a story around immigration and the building of America, right? That isn't happening in the Gulf. This is a, this is a Gulf project led by, led by the royal family and the the workers who, who have made this World Cup, built this World Cup, being airbrushed from history. But Al Qatar's comment, and I've, I've met him on several occasions. I've met Al Thawadi. I've interviewed him. They they came across then as far more thoughtful and engaged in the issue. But the fact that the Supreme Committee's in, like every everybody around this death that made a comment was like, okay, there's an investigation. Um, okay, that's terrible. We're going to find out what's happening. The Supreme Committee's first reflexive action as a comment and and as a statement was nothing to do with us not our jurisdiction that to me 
is and I I was appalled by his comments. I felt it was indicative of exactly everything we've been saying for the past fifteen years, and it showed that if anything, it, it, it highlighted that this talk of reform is is purely you know lip service. Yeah, three things. The first thing is that I would say that um, when we when we see what's happened with the response from Al Khattar, uh, Al Tawadi, and the others, uh, it puts into perspective the fate of Abdullahi Bais, which whom we should not forget about this strike which was happening. You remember we've talked about that, Max, was related to a World Cup project, and we should be honest with that. And the result of all of this is that Abdullahi Bais is currently in, in prison after a trial that was a, a mockery. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we shouldn't forget. The silent partner, FIFA. Um, FIFA has basically completely um, abandoned all... I mean, usually FIFA runs the show. In this case, it hasn't been. That hasn't been the case. They've been very happy for the Qataris to run the show from A to Z. And they've stayed completely silent on all these issues. Everybody who's been uh, with the travelling press corps to Qatar will tell you the same thing. It's been impossible to get any response whatsoever to any question whatsoever from FIFA that wasn't linked to the choice of a referee or something like that. Everything that went beyond that was met with complete silence. There have been no press conferences. There have been no press briefings. Jenny Infantino has been about as loquacious in public as David Beckham since his uh, insane brain fart of a, of a speech on the eve of the tournament. Um, and also, FIFA is staying silent on, a, on another, and I'm coming back to what Pete and, and James were talking about in terms of compensation, uh, this huge issue which is that of a compensation fund for the workers, which would be the true legacy uh, in, in terms of how the families of those who have died in Qatar can be helped beyond the tournament. FIFA is refusing to commit itself to anything of the kind when FIFA has the money to do it. As to the Qataris, they don't want to hear about it. So we shouldn't forget the role that, you know, it, when, when we're talking about this, people say, oh, is it really linked to football? Yeah, it absolutely is linked to football. And it is linked to the, to the governing body of world football, FIFA. There have been people who have spoken up in favour of Qatar and FIFA and have defended them. That includes some academics. That includes ex-players like John Barnes, Pete. I just wonder what you make of, are there positive voices that are completely independent, do you think? I think two of the... Uh, biggest supporters of what's happened in Qatar and the, re the so-called reforms they've introduced are, are not just FIFA, as Philippe said, but the International Trade Union Congress was initially incredibly critical of Qatar, far more critical than anyone else. And then around 2017, when uh, a deal was brokered to bring an end to the threat of a UN investigation into forced labor in Qatar, uh, the ITUC changed its tune 100% and has been incredibly supportive of Qatar. Now, the ITUC have said in a statement they've worked intensively over more than 11 years to ensure reform of Qatar's labour laws. The ITUC has welcomed the legal reforms that have been made in Qatar and has made it clear that continued pressure is required. Uh, they also said the ITUC's work on Qatar has since the beginning been entirely based on objective analysis and assessment of the facts. And any suggestion that any other entity from Qatar or anyone else has influenced the ITUC's position is entirely false. And actually, if you're a football fan and you hear some letters, like I would, I just hear some letters, you know, oh, that sounds like an official body things must be fine. What about, James, those other, you know, the the sort of the less official people talking about saying, look, we don't talk about these things in other countries. There's been a disproportionate 
you know, uh, amount of coverage for this. We should work. We should. We should. We should sort our own house out first. Those kind of comments. Words keeps coming back to me from this World Cup, walking around and not not believing what you're seeing. Like reality has been bent. It's like the unreality of the situation. Like you can't really believe what's written online. You can't believe the probity of the people who are campaigning for or against certain issues. Because one of the I keep going back to the Gulf blockade. I think it's so uh, central to this story. Because essentially this kind of disinformation, misinformation war takes place online and in real life with astroturfed human rights um, bodies, with uh, compromised uh, figures in public bodies. And no one knows and no one can trust what anyone. I mean, even this weekend, there's a massive story about police raids in Belgium surrounding the um uh European Parliament one of the one of the vice presidents of the European Parliament has been arrested and charged um allegedly because of Qatari influence although they're not officially naming the Gulf country but it has been named in the Belgian press and these are kind of kind of progressive left-wing politicians who have been going out and banging the drum for Qatar and its labor reforms over the past two years in, in, in a kind of kind of a lot of and I know some have some contacts in the European Parliament who found it quite strange that they were doing this. We should say here that the state of Qatar have said, quote, we're not aware of any details of an investigation. Any claims of misconduct by the state of Qatar are gravely misinformed. Also, it's understood four people have been charged, one being a former European vice president. Her lawyer did, however, make a statement saying she is innocent. This is this to me is the absolute kind of question is that when you're seeing people kind of... You mentioned the academics. I mean, I won't name any of them, but... These are people who, over the years, I've I've spoken to, I've contacted. Some of them have done some great works in other field, but it's almost as if that they felt affronted by the criticism as the as the as the process got closer. I don't even think it's necessarily that they've been nobbled in any way. I think it's just that they felt reflexively after the after the blockade, where they kind of supported Qatar over the aggression of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, that they felt that this was because that's still going on. By the way, I mean, there's still a UAE misinformation campaign. To try to kind of, even though it's officially ended, this blockade, this is still going on. This battle, this war on social media is is still um, going on. So it's impossible for football fans to, you know, you're just, you know, you, just, you want to watch the football. You don't really want to think about all this stuff anyway. And then it's impossible to know. Right? I've been I've been reporting on Qatar since 2005. Right. The first time I went there when it was like when it was all sand, you know, it was all, all fields, you know, and to see it, the transformation is incredible. But. You know, even me, I, I can't tell what's real and what's not. And that is the kind of Russian style disinformation end where you can't trust anything. You can't trust any source of information and it's too complicated and you check out. And I think that is what has successfully happened around this World Cup is that that's what people are doing. I mean, there is always the, there's always the feeling that when the football starts and the football's been pretty good, to be honest, that this naturally happens with every World Cup. I think that the, the criticism has gone deeper into this World Cup than than before, and it certainly helped when you've had other issues surrounding it, like Iran, like the issue with the the, uh, the rainbow armband as well. But you know, the, the the this feeling that what we're seeing is a mirage, and that we can't really trust anything or anyone. I think that's going to be the legacy of this World Cup, and not even of this World Cup of this of 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 politics, of society, of how we interact with information on the internet. I think it's been it's been a fascinating case study, but it's also kind of terrifying to watch it play out in real time. A lot of people have said, Pete, there are some real positives to take from this World Cup. Uh, it's in the Arab world, and that's a first, and that's a positive thing. Um, one city, they've proved that you can have a World Cup in one city, and that's been actually quite good 
for fans. Um, I don't know if that is true. I wasn't there, but I wonder if you, from what you saw, are there good things to come out of this caveated with, you know, all the stuff that we've speak, spoken about before? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, I think it, it. I think actually, I think it's great. There's been a World Cup in the Middle East. Uh, it has proved it can be done in a small country. Um, it has given, uh, I think, new fans and new teams opportunities that might not have happened if the World Cup was held elsewhere. That doesn't diminish in any way the problems that have existed in Qatar and continue to exist in Qatar in terms of human rights and particularly in terms of the rights of workers. And I think that's the important thing to remember, that football doesn't uh, wash away the problems that continue to exist. You know, and I'm still, you know, today receiving uh, WhatsApp messages from those security guards in Albida Park, you know, telling me that, you know, nothing's changed. Uh, they're still working 12-hour shifts. They're still being paid 35 pence an hour for overtime. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately for me, you know, that's the legacy that, that, that I'll remember, that I'll take away from this World Cup. I mean, I, look, I, I wrote a book, When Friday Comes, about Arab football culture, about Middle Eastern football culture, Persian football. Uh, football culture, Israeli football culture, um, because most people didn't think that the region had a football culture or had a, some kind of stereotype in their mind about it. So seeing an seeing a kind of Arab Middle Eastern World Cup, I think has been that's been a wonderful thing. And seeing a kind of different slant and seeing a kind of window into North African and and uh, Middle Eastern football culture, I think has been that's that's been a wonderful thing. Seeing the uh, normalization of the Palestinian flag in the stands, something which I mean, if I, I'm not sure if I'm speaking out of turn here, but I think in Russia there was a book of flags you weren't allowed to bring in, and you weren't allowed to bring in flags that weren't playing at that game. And this this has always been the case at international sporting events that the Palestinian flag would be taken down. Here, you know, although they. I think the organisers thought they were kind of one in the eye of the LGBT lobby or something. You know, the Palestinian flag, it's great to see that there. I think it's one of the great injustices in the world. And to have that normalised on the international stage, um, you know, I think has been has been great. The one thing is that this has been, I think the, I think people would agree with me, this has been a massive missed opportunity. If there's one positive about this, because the reform process clearly isn't going to stick afterwards, although... I think it probably will still be slightly better to be a migrant worker in Qatar than in Riyadh or Kuwait City or Abu Dhabi. Uh, the fact is that the issue of kafala is now an international issue. It is a known issue. When I first started writing about this in the Middle East, 2005, 2006, nobody wanted to know. Nobody wanted to know a damn thing about these workers. And so the issue of the World Cup did bring prominence to it. And if there is one, and it's a very small cold comfort, it's that we're here talking about it, that Pete's uncovering it, that we're traveling around the world speaking to the people who are victims of this system, which isn't just connected to football. This is how the entire Gulf is made. This is Western companies who take advantage of these workers, these engineering firms. It's governments in Bangladesh and Nepal and India and Pakistan who benefit from this and the corruption and the exploitation that takes place all the way down the chain. But we're talking about it now and it's getting out there and the stories are getting out there. So I think the, the battle has been lost in terms of, trying to get a long-term reform process going here. But I don't think the war's been lost. I think this is the start of it and not the end of it. But finally, for this part, Tony says, do you think the innate drama provided by sport is why regimes continue to invest in sports washing? This tournament has been fantastic. It proves that the Qataris were probably right to invest. Pete? To an extent, yes. Um, I think one of the legacies of this World Cup, and I don't know if, if, if uh, colleagues on this panel will agree, is that 
FIFA is going to be much more careful about awarding to the World Cup to countries that have dubious human rights record. I mean, there's been some talk about Saudi Arabia trying to host the World Cup. I, I heard they maybe stood down from that. But I, I couldn't, I can't see now FIFA hurriedly awarding the World Cup to an authoritarian regime with a very questionable human rights record. Not because FIFA really cares about human rights, but because they do care about PR and they've been stung heavily on PR in this World Cup. And, and that might be one of the most significant legacies of this World Cup. See, I, I, I'm, I'm the opposite because this is a net gain for Qatar, whichever way you see it. Right. Because, I mean, from a Western perspective, we think, well, how can it be positive? But to the rest of the world in the global south elsewhere, you know, they've very cleverly played on the fact that the Western hypocrisy, American hypocrisy, you know, this is Qatar outside of that can almost a non-aligned country, um, you know, little Qatar, people picking on them. I think that the attitude to the World Cup is very different outside the West. But I think what this is, has been like this has been um, this has been a show of hard power. Qatar showed. Like, do you remember the Brazil World Cup when Brazil, essentially there were a lot of stories about FIFA law, FIFA land, you know, that they were forcing them to open up the stadiums to for beer. Qatar has had none of that. It's, they've brokered none of that because they're too powerful, weirdly, even though Qatar's a fraction of the size of Brazil. But they're too powerful today. And they've ex- exercised that power in a way that means that they are they can they can control FIFA. And I think it's, it's the exact opposite because we've had two very important moments, I think, where not not the awarding of Qatar at the World Cup to 2022, but the two key moments for me are Gianni Infantino meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman at the G20 summit. I think I believe that was after Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. Newcastle United's takeover of uh, by the PIF, essentially by the Saudi state. You you know you have the richest league in the world, and you have world's governing body completely in awe and uh, willing to accept almost anything from anyone. If you're going to give rewards to a country like Saudi Arabia in football, then there's no limit to who can do it. And there's no limit to what will happen to World Cups. So I think future World Cups are going to continue to be coveted and uh, hosted in authoritarian regimes. I don't think this is going to change anything. If anything, it's going to get worse. Pete, James, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Sorry for being so bleak. No, it is bleak. But what we should do, though, is because because the the stories about Qatar will disappear now. Like we'll talk about the Carabao Cup in a, next week. Um, we should we should we should get you on again in a, a year's time or whatever, and just and and check back in. Thank you, Pete. Thank you. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. This has been the first World Cup in the Middle East, uh, in the Arab and in the Muslim world. One thing that we have failed to do uh, is hear Muslim voices about it. And, and we're going to do that now. Um, uh, joining us, uh, Nuruddin Chowdhury, uh, author and broadcaster at Bearded Genius uh, on social media. Hey, Naz, how are you? Yeah, good. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, very good. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Shireen Ahmed, a senior contributor with CBC Sports, co-host of the Burn It All Down podcast. I know it's very early in Canada, so thank you for getting out of bed for us. Thank you for having me. 
I'm going to start this bit with an email that we got from Asif, uh, critical of our coverage um, of the World Cup. It's quite long, so uh, bear with us, but I think it is worth reading because it's it's uh, very articulate and I don't have a perfect answer for it. And I'm hoping the panel do. Uh, Dear Max and friends, I've been a regular listener to the podcast for many years, even since the days before your very polite takeover. It's been a twice weekly pleasure listening to all of you. I'm originally from Pakistan. I've been living in the US on and off since 2007, from 2001 to 2005. I lived in the UK. I've been a Manchester United supporter since the early 2000s. It's a wrong time to start supporting Manchester United. But anyway, uh, I've often found myself nodding along on many of these serious issues that you take up on the podcast, whether it be regarding money from sovereign states or the treatment of minorities in modern football, issues of fans' rights and lower league clubs or apathetic owners often disconnected from supporters. However, I've never heard the pod and all its various guest pundits and participants be as united in your indignant and principled opposition to anything as you have all been to the Qatar World Cup. I also have to admit that I've never felt so much dissonance listening to the podcast. The criticism from you and your media colleagues, mostly in Europe, North America, Australia and New Zealand, smacks of Eurocentric attitudes towards those from different cultures. Let me say here that I believe in equality for all, racial, ethno-linguistic, gender, religious and for members of the LGBTQ plus community. In my home country, Pakistan, the status and conditions of LGBTQ plus individuals are not much better than in Qatar. I also strongly believe in the freedom of the press, the rights of workers to dignified living conditions, living wages and to unionise and freedom of movement. Most of these rights were also absent and there were countless moral issues around the Summer Olympics in Beijing, the Winter Olympics in Sochi, the Russia World Cup and half of the Formula One races every year. Yet the bile and the criticism of any of those never rose to the bitterness you seem to be able to muster on a daily basis for Qatar 2022. France hosted the Euros in 2016 while having banned the face covering in a draconian law obviously aimed at one specific minority. Section 28 of the Local Governments Act became law in your wonderful country in 1988, only 34 years ago. It was not overturned until 2003, a year where men and women from your country illegally invaded a neighbour of Qatar's. I protested in London along with hundreds of thousands of others that year, yet to no avail. Perhaps we should have all tried to convince FIFA from banning England, the United States and other members of the Coalition of the Willing from all international competitions. I wonder how your predecessors at The Guardian covered Argentina 78. Will you have the same bile for one of the hosts of the 2026 World Cup where women's rights over control of their bodies were severely curtailed recently? and where many migrant workers are constantly mistreated. Today, Ben Stokes led the English out in the first test in Raw Pindi. The Guardian has not written a single expose about the plight of members of the LGBTQ plus community in Pakistan, nor the plight of workers there. Perhaps no World Cup should be held in your respective countries until you've returned all stolen wealth and artefacts to your former colonies. Perhaps we can have the World Cup every four years in the Maldives until it inevitably sinks under the waves. I am unaware of any horrors committed by the good people of the Maldives of their government. At least your pod hasn't constantly whined about the limitations on the availability of alcohol and the fact that this World Cup's being held in the winter as if hot and or Muslim majority countries should simply never deign to even consider to host a World Cup. Hundreds of millions of Muslims around the world feel represented by Qatar 2022 in a way they never have been before. For the first time in their lives, they feel able to attend World Cup matches without being showered by beer by hundreds of loud, sweary Europeans. To most of these people, you all sound petty and disconnected. I grant you that things are not so simple. The stories of members of the LGBTQ plus community that you had on the pod a few days ago sound heartbreakingly like the stories of many in my home country. It's important that these are shared and their voices heard. But you seem to be incapable of acknowledging that there is a journey that has to be traversed towards equality. 
You're all old enough to remember when your own countries were horrible places to be an LGBTQ plus person or a brown or black person in or a woman in or a religious minority in. Yes, Western Europe is further ahead than most of the world when it comes to granting of rights to and the protections of minorities and marginalized communities. Qataris have to endeavour to win these rights for themselves. I'm not sure being bombarded by self-righteous and indignant lectures from their former colonisers is in fact helpful in this. This has been difficult to write because I agree with the criticisms. I risk sounding like a lackey for an authoritarian regime or of Gianni fucking Infantino and the corrupt process by which the tournament was awarded in the first place. But it is the seemingly selective nature of the indignation over Qatar that sits uncomfortably. Anyway, my apologies for ranting. I sincerely hope that all those who are different from what is considered the norm and suffer bigotry as a result of it in the places they reside will see better days soon and will find the strength to survive till then. Um, Asif. Shireen, how, how fair are those criticisms? I think the Asif pointing out these things is incredibly relevant and important. I think that the first thing... I'm not going to talk about hypocrisy because we can't have any host of any mega tournament as a standalone. There'll always be a place where there, for example, the United States, Canada, and Mexico are try hosting 2026. And as he mentioned, Roe v. Wade was overturned. There was no, you can get an abortion in Qatar, but you can't as a woman get one in the United States in places. And that's something that people don't want to acknowledge. The uncomfortable truth is there will be pros and cons of this tournament. I mean, I for one went with a lot of trepidation. I am somebody who's, you know, fully pro-queer and have a lot of colleagues who are gay and who felt who did not participate in the way they should have. I don't believe in selective inclusion if it's not open. But at the same time, do I feel that the criticisms of Doha were marinated in Islamophobia and anti-Arab and anti-Muslim sentiment? Absolutely. I mean, we saw this entire thing happen with Russia, but I don't feel the Western and, and, and media, football media from the Global North engaged in the same way with the same criticisms of Russia. They absolutely didn't. I didn't see them. And I'm very well, you know, sort of equipped to to understand and to read it. Um, I think there's also a fear of the unknown here. And there's something I'm going to be very candid about this, and I saw it with my own eyes. The football world needs to accept and understand that there's one place in the world that is ready to host these kind of tournaments, and that will be the golf because of their money. And the football world can't pretend to be indignant about things when they selectively accept that money coming and filtering in. Either you, you are or you aren't. I mean, I'm not trying to be black and white about it, but th there needs to be that very frank discussion here, that this is a place where we will see the growth of football in a major way, because the money is there. And I, it, football is a, is a business. We like to be purists. We like to think of it as a grassroots places. But truly, this particular tournament is about money. And that flourishes there. Um, as far as the, you know, the other criticism, I thought he was quite fair in what he said. I think there's certain ways that we've seen expression politically and geopolitically. I've never seen more. I would beg to tell you, I saw more Palestinian flags regularly than I saw Canadian flags. Far, far more for multiple reasons. But that also speaks to location freedom of expression in a way and 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 feeling of that location in that region that is oft forgotten in the football discussion. I mean, you want to talk about women. Let's be very clear about this. I'm somebody who's very who has written very much about lack of women in Iran to access stadiums, talked about abuse in those places and in, in, including Afghanistan, talking about, you know, just the lack of mobility of players to move around. That's not the case in Qatar. In fact, in Qatar, and I went to and spoke with several young university students, 70% of post-secondary education 
those students are women. And these are, these are statistics people don't know. Women don't need permission from brothers or fathers or husbands in order to move about. That's not the situation. We're absolutely dealing with classism and shadism, hugely. I'm not denying that. But at the same time, we want to pick and choose what we complain about without actually having to. And somebody who's an expert in Muslim women in sport, Muslim women are very often written about without, without actually being consulted. And there's one thing I will point out. France hosted the 2019 Women's World Cup. I was there, but I was there to critique that particular host country. They're the only federation in the world, the Fédération Française du Football, that do not permit Muslim women to wear hijab while coaching playing or officiating. So let's not pretend that every other country out here is pro-women. Nobody spoke about that. Do you know how difficult it was to write about? I've been writing this beat for 10 years. Nobody wanted to publish because nobody was interested in it. So I do really appreciate Western media, you know, being in an uproar about something when it suits their agenda. That's my rant. No, it was spectacular. Noz, beat beat that. I don't think I can. Um, that, that was That was excellent. And I also think that um, the email was excellent. Um, I mean, ev- everything everything that has been said is true. I think what we need to sort of look at is is sort of like because because a lot of a lot of what was said in that email was what about this or what about that, and I think that's very different from what we know as what aboutism. What aboutism is a way of shutting people up, of basically um, if somebody's saying this is happening, that's happening. It's 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 a tactic to sort of like say, but what about that? That's happening over there. What about that? That's happening over there. So shut up. I don't think that email is doing that. I think that email is genuine, um, and and it's and it's a feeling that a lot of people are feeling around the world. Um, and this and and this idea of of sort of the World Cup changing views. I'll I'll be honest. One view of mine that has changed, and and again, like this is me speaking as as a Muslim, but living in Europe is is I is I is I did have a very Eurocentric view of like, oh, why isn't it in summer? Like why are we having this at Christmas? Why are we having it at winter? It's it's less enjoyable to me. And the the sort of joy I've seen and the sort of excitement I've seen amongst um Moroccans and 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 Africa as a whole and, and the Middle East as a whole and Arabs as a whole, it's made me realise that that's that's really selfish of me to think that way and and maybe the benefits of allowing countries that um it's impractical for them to have the world cup in summer maybe maybe it's it's opened it opened my eyes of like well maybe we should sort of like um think about um winter world cups and and how we can incorporate that into the into the football calendar there's a lot of people sort of getting um quite angry about um like people in the media and journalists sort of going over to Qatar saying they're going to shine a light on things and then going there and saying it's not that bad. Um, I think that's lots of things tangled up because in one sense, you should never change your mind about things like uh, suppression of of minorities, of homophobia, of um, the, 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 the human rights uh, issues and the cost of lives building the stadiums. That should never end. That should never change. No matter how well you're treated, no matter how well sort of it's run, that should never ever change. Um, this attitude where people have been saying actually it's not that bad, um, the atmosphere is quite nice. Like that is almost um, 
that is almost offensive in a different way because what were you expecting? Like the, the issue about organization and the issue about people not being um, monsters, like, well, of course they wouldn't be. Of course, like um, you'll go there and, and you'll realize that actually it's well run. Um, people are very hospitable. That's, that's, that's a separate issue to everything that is problematic about this World Cup. And, and and I think I think it's so important to untangle things because if you bunch everything together, if you make a situation where it's goodies and baddies and there's a pure goodness and there's pure badness, that will that will never end well because because that is when things like Orientalism come in and otherness and treating people as if as if they are a different species where where they're not. And again, like one of the great things about this World Cup and and somebody who's really kind of like a open their heart to things is someone like Ian Wright. Like like the videos he's done where he's he's met normal people, uh he's met he he sort of like uh made gawa cups with people and he's and he's like uh like uh um met with sort of people of different sort of nationalities and sort of learn about the customs. That that is a beautiful thing because he's going in with an open heart. He's not going in as a as a as an ambassador to the to the Qatar regime or or sort of um absolving um the nation state of like any of the atrocities that it undertakes but he's seen people as people and he's taken that on board and and just a quick point like that my my that that my mate mentioned to me and i'd not realized it until he said it is like uh you had the russian world cup and you had you've had obviously lots of world cups previously where there's been serious issues political issues and sort of human rights issues and it takes dictatorships and all that but and again, this seems like a small thing, but it's worth noting. Um, the intros, like the BBC intros, the ITV intros, have always been a massive thing about watching these World Cups. You go back to Ness and Dorma and everything. Even in, even in the Russian World Cup, which was the last one, it was all about Russia. Like like you saw the intro, intro, the music, the iconography, it was all about Russian culture. And in this World Cup, the BBC have just decided to have this generic intro, which is which tells you nothing about where it's been staged nothing about local culture and for a lot of like just normal sort of muslims or or people um from from, from the middle east or arabs it's kind of like well it's happening here like at least acknowledge it like it's it means something beyond qatar it means a lot to a lot of people sort of that are in the region and just kind of feel seen in a small way i mean thinking out loud and obviously i think we should i can't see us doing four specials on you know migrant rights LGBTQ plus rights and 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 women's rights in the US. I, I can't. Well, in the w- women's rights, we can certainly do something. Well, no, about of course we can, but whether we will in four years' time is a different question. I, I feel we should because I'll be I'll be texting you to do it. Yeah. I'll be reminding <laughs> yeah. you to do it. You... I'm not leaving the WhatsApp group now, so. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I ask you, Shereen, um One community that really doesn't have a voice uh, is the LGBTQ plus community in in Qatar, and I am. I am not an expert on Islam. Can you have a World Cup in the, in in a Muslim country? And there are lots of obviously non-Muslim countries that do not have an inclusive position on LGBTQ plus issues, right? There are sixty nine countries where it's illegal. Is there a country in the Muslim world that that does have an inclusive position? I mean, I, I seem I'm I feel like conflicted between I can't I don't want to sit here and say you can't have a World Cup anywhere, and yet if there is a country that has doesn't have an inclusivity you know, the, if the government position isn't inclusive, then that is also a problem for me. I think the thing is, is that it's really important not to brush all 
uh, most of the majority of countries with one brush. There are communities and countries in which there are thriving queer communities. And I think that's something that we have to, to remember. Um, but a lot of the places in a lot of countries, and this is not dissimilar to South America, where again, um, you know, in Mexico, it, CONCACAF is really struggling with a very homophobic chant said by the supporters, which I'm not going to repeat. So it's not as if a homophobia only exists in pockets in 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 in, in Muslim countries or Arab spaces. But the culture, and I'm no authority on this. This is what I've learned. Um, the culture of, of queer communities is to be underground. So in, in for survival and for their the way that they thrive and they operate, like they did in many spaces, they are severely underground. So there are ways in which those communities exist. I was made privy to a particular neighborhood in Doha that I'm aware of where there are expat queer community folks who live together. They cohabitate as partners and as families. This is not reported on because the understanding from that community is it will not be reported on because it disrupts their peace. So here is where I see the Western gaze coming on because it doesn't necessarily, and I'm not saying it's it's supported or allowed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes I get frustrated with Western world not seeing things the way they want to see it. And that's something that I've also come into contact with with women in Qatar. Because it doesn't exist and the freedom doesn't exist in the way that we think it should, then we're like, no, wait a minute. There are, there everywhere there will be gay communities. Everywhere, we know this. Whether it's allowed at a, like a federal level or a governmental level, no, it won't be. And I can't lie and say that it is, which, you know, much like Nas said, bothers me immensely. You can't purport to have an inclusive game and then say, no, you can't participate. I don't like that. I hate it. So I felt a heaviness when I went there. I felt like I was selling out. A week before, I told my husband, I don't think I want to go. I can't be true to what I talk about here. And that you how I posit myself and then go to Qatar. And he's like, it's not black and white. Go see it. It's actually quite complicated. It's very layered. Now, in different Muslim countries, for example, Turkey considers itself a Muslim majority country. And there's there's huge communities of gay folks living there. So if you're asking me where can it be held, I mean... I mean, I, I would hope the question was broadly applied. Should it be held in Mexico, for example? Like, th there's that same thing. And I, I don't want to be counterproductive and be like, have oppression Olympics. Well, what about this here? What about this here? That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just saying, let's look at how we're asking these questions and we're applying the questions to. Did anybody bring up the homophobia question when France, when uh, Mexico was bidding? Did anybody do this? And this is not something that I'm making up. This is something that, you know, different human rights organizations are literally struggling with in Mexico. Is, is this blatant homophobia? And I think that as far as Muslim majority countries, I hope to see. I really do hope to see because it's it would be naive to say and to argue that there aren't folks from those communities there living already. And, and maybe perhaps hosting them and them being out and loud and proud, which works in different parts of the world where there is freedom and individual freedom. It doesn't exist there. So the disruption of that could cause people their safety. I mean, I desperately wanted to have contact with people from those communities. And I was very simply, candidly told, no, we don't talk to journalists here. And I had to accept that and appreciate it. And, you know, it's not something we like because as journalists, we have an interest in, in in digging and asking questions and doing those things. But 
it won't always manifest the way that we want to. I'm sorry for this long-winded question. There's just so much happening and I need more coffee. There's always an intersection of identities and 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 sort of circumstance because and again again in, in a lot of ways it's it's a thankless task because I I I I would get annoyed and I would take umbrage to people who take things too far and just use the the license that this World Cup has given people to criticise um, certain things to, to sort of broaden out and just be uh, anti-Arab or anti-Muslim or sort of um, orientalist in their sort of views. However, by the same token, I would be massively uh, annoyed and angry if um, workers' rights weren't mentioned and and weren't discussed and weren't criticised. And 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 as as a Muslim and I'm and. Uh, I don't want to speak for um, Shireen, but I, I assume it's the same thing of like, um, we've got far more in common with people who have died, workers who have died from the subcontinent, that, uh, uh, as, uh, far more than like some Qatari playboy. Like, like, like these, these are people who have died, who have gone to a place, um, uh, have, are working under this kafala system where their lives are basically owned. Those are Muslims. Like, so... It's it, it's it's always intersectional. It's always sort of like um, there's different sort of parts of it. But what I would say about what you do on the podcast and what a lot of other people do is is it's part of a macrocosm. So unfortunately, like like I th- I think you've done a good job. To be honest, I think I think you've you've um, um, shone light on important things and you've done it in a reasonable way. But the reason why people can be quite sensitive about things is because it's about the drip, drip, drip. So they don't see only the Guardian podcast. They don't see only a particular article. They see a whole lot of drip, drip, drip. And then and then it sort of like builds up in you and you, and you get sort of quite upset about it. Of like, well, well, how is this different from Russia? How is this different from X, Y, and Z? And, and the key thing, and Philip said, Philip said it, is, is like, keep the same energy. Like now... You have set your stall. Like the like the media in general has set this stall of like there's a World Cup in this place. We're gonna sh- shine a light on these particular issues that are very serious and very important. So continue to do that. Like like it, it, like in the next World Cup, talk about sort of uh, the autonomy women have got over their own bodies. Talk about um, like has anything changed since George Floyd? It's that kind of thing that sort of now needs to continue because otherwise, if in if in two or three World Cups time you look back. And the only thing people criticised was the Qatar World Cup. That is that is just wrong, and that is that is that is out of order. So as long as your heart is open and you're kind of thinking, well, okay, we've we've received this email from from this really eloquent person who genuinely cares and cares about the podcast, and we're going to take this seriously and we're going to discuss it. Like that is that is a great thing to do because because it's self-correction it's kind of thinking well okay we're taking this on board we're not dismissing it we're not being sort of defensive we're gonna we're gonna discuss it and and sort of like uh look at the merits of what's being discussed ramsey says have the panel re-evaluated any of their doubts about a world cup in qatar i think that's an interesting question to to finish on um philippe oh my goodness <laughs> uh is constant Yes, because we have talked to people we hadn't talked to before, because um, things have been said that hadn't been said before, um, because uh, I- including now uh, this conversation, it's all part. It's all part of a process. So yes, uh, there's been a constant revalu- evaluation. That doesn't necessarily mean 
that um, an awful lot, I'm talking for myself here, from my standing point has changed. Some things have moved a little bit, some things I understand better. What I understand, I think, is that more than anything is that I need to understand far more than, and that I know very, very little, uh, even though I've been working on this uh, World Cup and on Qatar for over 10 years now. And and it's only now that I, I've come to understand that there were loads of things that I, I was not understanding properly because of listening to people. So yeah, um, revaluation, uh, Max, absolutely. Uh, whether my opinion as to whether that World Cup should have happened there or not, it hasn't changed. Uh, I don't think you were expecting me to give you a different answer to that. No, no, no. Has it changed for you, Shireen? I think in some ways, I mean, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I think I went in with sort of echoes of Western feminism in my head and reminded myself, although I'm a hijab-wearing Muslim woman, and I really believe in, in, in you know, identity and self-representation, but I was thinking too much along those lines of what I and what my feminism meant or what my idea of independence meant, and it's different around the world. And that was very humbling to sit down across with women who are deeply engaged in football, but it looks very different to the way that I would engage with football here um, was was something. And, and again, Again, to echo Philippe, I it's complicated. It's it's not one thing. There's some things that I'm more firm about disliking about this tournament, and more things that I am angry about, and more things. But it's giving me direction and motivation. And one of the things, and it, which is a stark discussion, and and as I end this, I think there needs to be a far more racially and religious diversity in, in media and football. And we don't see that. And that's something that I've always known. Nas has always known. I mean, when's the last time you can imagine a football podcast of this magnitude with two Muslims, one being a woman? I can't. Mm. Truly. No. no. And actually, it's, that is to our detriment. We have done podcasts like this. We did one after George Floyd, actually, about diversity. We're constantly improving on that, I think. But we sort of one lost part of that has probably been Muslim voices, actually. I mean, and that is, you know, that's something we should be better at. And and not sort of this, like I consider myself a firefighter, that every time something happens with a community or with racialized women, I Absolutely. get a phone call. Yeah. It should be embedded in the process, yeah. right? So, we, so we're talking about whether, you know, Hyung Min's son is happy or, 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 or VAR or, you know, right. if Alfonso Davis can carry Canada's win the works. Absolutely. Next World Cup. And the answer yeah. to the last one is no, but uh, because they all need to, <laughs> but I have so many thoughts on that. Um, but it, 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 like the idea um, is, is is exactly that. The discussions need to be more than just this. It just so happens that this is something in my purview and in my wheelhouse. But because I think it was it, it, that was the trajectory. But as far as this goes, it's been an incredibly instructive and impactful experience. Um, you know, marred with tragedy, as Nas said, the loss of so many lives that are deeply underreported. But the ways in which community was built around that. Um, you know, working with Human Rights Watch and doing work with Amnesty International and following what they've covered with the death of laborers and indentured servitude and how it affects a game. I think this is all really important. And at the same time, I mean, now said it, and I absolutely agree. When I was in Qatar, the lingua franca in that place, in the language of those serving the public and front-facing is our South Asian languages. I used far more, and my Arabic is very minimal, but I used far more Hindi and Urdu than I did anything else because those are the people in the neighborhood that I was staying on the ground. I had more Krak Chai that I did there than in my own home. 
So like, I think these are, it's complicated, right? Like it is, it is very cool. And I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to have those conversations with people. I didn't expect to be touched that way because of the media that I'm inundated with. And it was very humbling. I've learned, I've learned so many things from this World Cup and, and looking internally, like, like as an individual, like I didn't, I didn't say enough about the, about Russia during the World Cup there. I didn't say enough about like the homophobia there. So like I'm, I'm culpable in that fact. And I'm saying far more about like uh, what Qatar have done and sort of the, all the sort of horrendous things that that state is involved in, in this World Cup. And I didn't say in the last one, so I'm culpable. But like for me, taking the positive away, like little things, like I didn't realise how, like in terms of Morocco doing really really well in this World Cup, I didn't realise how um, that would break through like, uh, like the rest of Africa and and the rest of the Arab world, like I'm used to hating somebody who lives down the road from me. I'm 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 used to hating people from Liverpool and sort of that sort of like pettiness and like like it's so surprising to me that like on the even the border to like uh, Algeria, people are celebrating um, these these sort of like a natural sort of like a political sort of like um, rivalries. Like it's it's football sort of like a take like it's beyond that like people are just happy like and, and and in some way they feel represented and like to for me just on a final point like one one enduring memory that i will always take away from this imperfect world cup is the mo- like the moroccan mums sofian bufal and his mum is just so beautiful yeah. isn't it it's a, but it's but it's it's been so beautiful it's been so pure and again like like looking at it from like a, a muslim lens like it's so beautiful to see that, and and women wearing headscarves and just being happy and sort of living life and loving it, and it not being a negative thing. And everyone sort of universally, like people sort of seeing saying that's a beautiful thing, and and that is a situation where like Muslim women wearing hijab um, are not seen as oppressed, not seen as the victim. Uh, not seen as bad. It's just a pure moment that is unplanned. It's nothing to do with sports washing, and it's just this pure moment. And like that's 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 the kind of thing we can take. We can take bad things from good situations, and we can take good things from bad situations. And like that, that is one thing that I will I will always remember from a World Cup that's had loads of sort of serious issues about it. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, uh, it, like it's not a chat that we won't have again <laughs> we'll have you both on again just to talk about you know the Carabao Cup I'm, I'm not doing the Carabao Cup I can't <laughs> I've got to have a week off but look thank you so much for coming on appreciate it thank you Shireen thank you for having me thank you Noz alright thanks a lot bye cheers Philippe hey, hey Noz if you think that in Algeria they're happy about it you're completely utterly wrong <laughs> they're the one exception <laughs> Algerians no 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 Tunisians Egyptians Cameroonians Mauritanians everybody's <laughs> Don't say Algerians. They're going, not them, not them, not them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, a point to be made too. The last thing, just quickly, is that just the joy. I've I've missed that, and I think it gets back to what connects us in many ways. I'm careful to say I don't think football unites us necessarily, but connecting us, the joy. I also texted my son and say. Buffan's mother, uh, Buffan bought his mother a Louis Vuitton bag, where is mine? So a lot of Muslim mothers are now injecting their, what have you done at this point and why have I not been brought on the World Cup stage? So I will admit that. As a mom, I did say that. 
And that'll do for today. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back after the final on Sunday. This is The Guardian. 